0: If you sit nearby the section where I sit almost every week and with Brother John, if you sit in front of us, you will feel something in your ear, drums. <laughs> he and I really sing aloud. And let me explain why I sing hymns, hymn, hymns and songs the loudest. I mean, I can, I can do with a beautiful tone, not a, a breaking tone. Uh, I was actually I, when I was living, when I lived in Powell, Tennessee for my undergrad at my college. I used to go to actually a cemetery where I prayed and meditated, you know, on the Word of God and walking through the tombs and graves and see the, all the tombstones and actually what I found was there are a lot of people who died young. I was born in 1985 and there are a bunch of people actually around who were born around when I was born. And there are a lot of people were buried there. And I made a promise to God. Lord, whenever I have an opportunity to sing, I'm going to do it to the top of my lungs. Because I never know when I go. And I want to do it with my best when I'm living on earth. So that's the, that's the reason why I sing so loud. So uh, just uh, for your information there. Okay, uh, beginning with tonight, we're going to start a new series for the Sunday evenings uh, whenever I preach. And Pastor actually asked me to preach and teach this series, and that is uh, Post Missionary Journeys from Acts, in the book of Acts. And But before we do that, actually, we need to understand what the book of Acts is and how missional is the book. So that's what we are going to do, and the title of the a lesson is more like a teaching than preaching, uh, is the book of Acts, God's passion for mission. So let's go to Acts chapter 1, Act 1, and we're going to read verses 1 through 8. The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen So my my task for tonight is to prepare your hearts and minds for the coming series on Paul's missionary journeys. And Paul's missionary journeys are an invaluable historical record that teaches us how Paul and his companions proclaimed the message of the gospel and planted local churches throughout the Western world. And before we launch into the study of Paul's missionary journeys, or here's in methods, uh, we need to understand some important events that took place before Acts 13, where Paul's first missionary journey begins with Barnabas. So let's first first consider the uniqueness of the book of Acts. So tonight's message is going to be quite simple. There are only two points. The first point is the book of Acts is a unique book. And this book record, records historically and theologically important events they are never found in the other New Testament records. The four Gospels actually significantly overlap, especially the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They're called Synoptic Gospels because they're so similar to each other. And uh, they're so similar. Even John, which is not exactly the same, but still contains some overlapping stories. And some of the New Testament letters actually correspond to each other. Actually, you, you can see, you know, Ephesians and Colossians, they are quite similar. And Colossians was written at the same time when Philemon was written. You can you also find some same people in that. And you, you, and Jude and Second Peter are quite similar. And you can find many similarities between the New Testament letters. But most of the events in Acts are not found in other parts Of the New Testament. So without Acts, we do not know anything about Pentecost. If we don't know about the Pentecost event, we don't really know about the beginning of the New Testament church. And without the Acts, we cannot know the conversion of the Samaritans. We never know if there was any reconciliation between the Jews and Samaritans in in, in terms of the gospel. And without the, the book of Acts, we will, know, we will not know about the story of the conversion of the first Gentile convert, you know, Cornelius. And then, then we wouldn't know about the church in Antioch if we didn't have the book of Acts, which was at the center of the world evangelism, you know, where, from, from where Paul and Barnabas started their first missionary journey. And then without the Acts, we wouldn't know the beginning of the churches in Galatia, Philippi, Corinth, Ephesus, and Thessalonica. So the book of Acts actually has many events that are so necessarily important to our knowledge of the rest of the New Testament. So if we didn't have Acts, we wouldn't have been able to understand the meaning of many important passages in Paul's letters. Also, we wouldn't have known how James could write James. Because James is so, you know, we, we think you know, he's a half-brother half of Jesus. Yet the book of Acts... Records how James became the head pastor of Jerusalem. But if we didn't, didn't have that record, we wouldn't know why James wrote James. That, that would be a little strange to us. So the book of Acts is uniquely important because it contains so many historical events and facts that inform our knowledge about the rest of the New Testament. And the book of Acts is also unique because it, its author was probably a Gentile. Church history has long attested that Luke and Acts were written by Luke, the physician and missionary companion of Paul. And how do we know that Luke was a Gentile? Let's go to Colossians quickly. Colossians 4. If you look at verse 10, um, Paul begins to talk about his Jewish companions, the co-workers. Colossians 4.10, Paul says, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greet you. With Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, about whom you receive instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus was called justice. And Paul says here, These are my only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are of the circumcision. What does it mean? They're Jews. These are only companions of Paul who were Jewish people for the kingdom of God. They have proved to be a comfort to me. And then Paul begins to talk about his Gentile co-workers. Epaphras, who is one of you, a bond servant of Christ, greet you. And then he talks about, you know, him until the end of uh, verse 13. And verse 14, Paul says, look, the beloved physician and Demas greet you. You see here, after he said, uh, he's introduced the Jewish fellow workers, He said, these are the only Jewish workers that I'm working with. And then Epaphras and Luke and Demas, probably they were Gentile co-workers for with Paul. Which means most likely Luke and Acts were written by a Gentile. This is an amazing actually piece of information for us because, you know, usually we know, you know, all the New Testament, even New Testament was written by all the Jewish authors, but probably not, uh, because Luke was most likely a Gentile person. If he were Jewish, probably he was a half-Jew, and that's the only possibility we can think of, but he could have been just fully Gentile. So, So this is really important information. Why? Because the book of Acts actually talks about how the gospel spreads to the Gentile world, and that was attested by a Gentile writer. And also, you know, the book of Luke talks about a lot of people that are cast out in the society. And of course, Gentiles were the cast outs in terms of Jewish, you know, perspective. So this is quite interesting that God chose Luke specifically to write these two invaluable records of Jesus' life and the early church's life. And the book of Acts is also unique because it is both transitional and pragmatic book. What I mean by transitional is this. The act is a transitional book because it records non-repetable events that establish the new covenant community, which is the church. For instance, uh, the reestablishment of the 12 apostles. You know, there are some sect within Christianity today who believe there's still apostles, but we know... (laughs) The apostles we know had to stay uh, in within the New Testament era. There's no more apostles, and then that's something that couldn't be repeated after the 12th apostle was chosen in Acts 1. And what about Pentecost, the coming of the Holy Spirit? And I know you know some of you are might be familiar with the charismatic movement, and or even the churches that are not charismatic uh, within that camp, some pastors still teach because the apostles waited in Jerusalem for, for the promise of the Holy Spirit. So we have to wait until the Holy Spirit comes upon us before we proclaim the gospel. I'm sure many of you have heard that kind of message because the disciples waited for the Holy Spirit. So we have to wait for the Holy Spirit. Do you think that's correct? No. Because Pentecost can't be repeated. If you're believers, you already have the Holy Spirit. Paul is very clear. If you don't have the Spirit in you, you are none of Christ. You don't belong to Christ. So you don't have to wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit to proclaim the gospel. If you are already a believer, of course, if you're not a believer, you need to wait and listen to the word of God, and have the gospel message, and receive Christ as your Savior. So the Pentecost event can't be repeated. Why? Because the, on the day of Pentecost, the Old Testament era ended, and the New Testament era began. So in that way, the book of Acts is a transitional book. Yet at the same time, book, uh, Acts is also a pragmatic, programmatic book. Is it correct? Programmatic book. In other words, this book provides guidance on how to preach the gospel and how to establish local churches and what to do when a local church is once established. So it gives us some examples that we can follow. For instance, let's go to Acts 2. In Acts 2, verse 42, you find that there are four elements that have have to be present when you do a church. So there you find, and they continue steadfastly, first in the apostles doctrine, and second, fellowship, and third the breaking of the bread, most likely the Lord's Supper, and fourth, prayers. And these four things were there in the church of Jerusalem. And then if we call ourselves a church, we need to, we have to these four things at to, uh, as, as a at the least. So, so this, this is an example that we follow as we plant a church. And actually, I think about these things a lot these days because I'm planting a church and I need to think about, you know, what I should do and what I should not do or what I can do or cannot do. So this, the, act, the book of Acts helps me to sort those things out. And the examples of the apostles and preachers demonstrate that we must establish local churches by preaching the gospel, not by human means and strategies. You know, we have so many church plant strategies out there. You know, you have to do these things and those things. You have to utilize those programs and that programs, the other programs. the book of Acts is very clear. How do you establish church? By proclaiming the message of the gospel. That's it. For instance, you know, in Thessalonica, most likely Paul and his companions stay there about three weeks, less than a month. And he proclaimed the gospel. And there was a church when he left the city. How could he do that if he had to do some programs, use some programs to go through to plan a church? No, he just preached the gospel. And that gives us an example. So when we plan a church, we just need to preach the gospel and people will embrace Christ and they'll be born again and they will belong to the body of Christ and they will be baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then they will continue to follow Christ together according to the teachings the Lord has given to us through his apostles. So the book of Acts is a uniquely important book for our understanding of the history and practices of the New Testament church. And let's talk about the second point tonight. The book of Acts is a missional book. In other words, the book of Acts is all about Missions. Many interpreters identify Acts 1 8 as the theme verse of the entire book. So let's go back to Acts 1 and verse 8. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And this theme verse reveals that the book of Acts is a book about missions. So what is mission or missions? The term mission or missions is from the Latin word missio, which means sending. So thus, the term mission includes the ideas of intentionality and movement. There has to be an intentionality of the sender with the message, with the messengers, and then there has to be a movement We don't know how far it has to be, but there has to be a movement with this missional concept. In other words, missions proceeds from an authority that sends invoice with the message to other people in other places. That's the concept, the idea of missions to simply put Christian missions includes the four main ideas. First, the sender. Second, the invoice or those that are sent out. And third, the message. And then fourth, the receivers. These four main ideas have to be present when we talk about missions. So who do you think the sender who sends out his invoice with authority in Acts 1-8? As you look look at it there. Probably you think the Holy Spirit. But I would argue that the triune God is the sender. Of course, what you find in this verse is only the Holy Spirit, but we have to understand that the Holy Spirit didn't send himself. Uh, previously, the Lord Jesus said very similar words to the disciples after his resurrection. So you know that the, the companion book to Acts is Luke. So let's go to Luke 24. Luke 24, verses 48-48. And 49, Jesus says, very similar language there. And you are witnesses of these things. Verse 48, Behold, I, who is I here, Jesus, send the promise of my Father upon you. What's the promise is about? The Holy Spirit. And he says, it is, the promise of the Holy Spirit is the promise of the Father. But tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are in endued with the power from on high. So again, the power is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit sent is sent by Jesus, and he's coming from the Father. You see there? So both the Father and the Son are the senders of the Holy Spirit, and all three persons of the triune God are one sender who sends out disciples with authority. And this authority is the supreme authority above all other authorities on earth. So we have to obey this command. When the sender with the absolute authority sends us, we have to listen. And that's the concept there. Then who are the invoices or messengers of this authoritative sender? The disciples who are listening to Jesus' command to stay in Jerusalem until the coming of the Holy Spirit. The rest of the book of Acts makes it very clear that Jesus' disciples were sent to the world to preach the message of, Of their master, the gospel. Then, what is the message? Again, Luke twenty-four helps us to know the content of the message. So, let's go to verse forty-six, just a a few verses above. Then he said to them, "Thus it is written, that thus it was necessary for the Christ, the Messiah, the King, to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached." In his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. So it is the message of the gospel of Jesus, the Messiah, who died and rose again to grant repentance and the forgiveness of sins to to those who believe in and submit to the King Jesus. So that is the message of the gospel. And lastly, who are the receivers of the message then? The people of all nations. From Jerusalem to all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the world. The sequence of the four locations is historically and theologically significant because in the book of Acts, the gospel was spread from Jerusalem to all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the world, just like Christ said, you will be witnesses from beginning with Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and the ends of the world. So the the gospel spread through these locations as we read through the book of Acts. So this order itself is the outline of the book of Acts, actually. So so the gospel first is is spreading to the Jews in Jerusalem, and that's what you find in um, chapters one. One through six, six seven. So chapter one and one through six seven, you find the gospel is being spread among the Jews in Jerusalem. So let's go to Acts six and seven. There is actually the concluding statement about the gospel ministry within Jerusalem. Acts six seven. It says, "Then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in where, in Jerusalem." And a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. So the gospel was fully proclaimed within Jerusalem. And then the gospel continued to spread among the Jewish people in all Judea and Samaria. And that's what you find in chapter 6, 8 through chapter 9, verse 31. And let's go to chapter 9 and verse 31 of Acts. Then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified, and walking in the fear of the Lord, and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. You see, as the Lord said in Acts 1a, the gospel was reaching Jerusalem, and then secondly, it reached the, you know, all Judea and Samaria. And the accomplished statement is actually the gospel was fully preached in all Judea and Samaria. And then the gospel began to spread to the Gentiles in Acts 10, It continued to spread to the ends of the world, and you can find some statements that that really make us sure the gospel was continued to be preached to the rest of the world. So let's go to Acts 12 24. But the word of God grew and multiplied. It meant that the gospel was received by Gentiles, and then they were planning, they became the part of local churches, and the gospel then is being uh, spread to the people in Turkey, and you can find the concluding statement in acts sixteen five acts sixteen five says, so the churches were strengthened in the faith and increased in number daily. These are the people in Turkey, the Asia Minor. And then the gospel goes to Macedonia and the continent of Europe. And you can find in acts nineteen twenty, acts nineteen twenty says, so the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed so nobody could stop the word being spread among the Gentile people and finally in acts 28 verses 31 at uh, 30 and 31 you find paul in where in Rome and in where in Rome in prison it's actually home, home prison a house prison but he was there in house prison and then even when he was in prison nobody could stop him proclaiming from proclaiming uh the word of god so verse 30 says then paul dwelt two whole years in his own rented house and received all who came to him preaching the kingdom of god and teaching the things which concern the lord jesus christ with all confidence no one forbidding him you see here this is real rapid you know the gospel is just spreading so fast to the entire world. So the book of Acts from the beginning to its end is all about missions. The triune God sent out his messengers with the message to the people of all nations. Is then God's missions over? No. The same triune God continues to send out his messengers with the same message to the rest of the world. And who are these messengers? Us, you and me. And we are the messengers who believe in the same message that Jesus' disciples believed and proclaimed throughout the book of Acts. And we are the product of the missions that God began from 2,000 years ago. This actually gives me some chills sometimes. And when I think about it, actually, the gospel I have in me was the gospel Peter preached on the day of Pentecost. Wow. It's just great. You know, we have that traditional, uh, tra- tradition uh, that just gives us confidence about this gospel. And we must continue to carry it out until Christ comes back. So post-missionary journey begins in Acts 13, but it doesn't mean that Acts 1 through 12 is silent about the topic of missions now let's learn now about a few events in acts 1 through 12 that have some missional significance so i'm going to give you a few events that are taking place in acts 1 through 12 and although the mission the first missionary journey of paul didn't begin yet these chapters is really full filled with the concept of world evangelism let's now first talk about let's talk about uh, christ and ascension you can find Christ's ascension in chapter 1, verses 9 uh, through 11. There you see, and after he gives the, the command, you will be my, my, my witnesses after you receive the Holy Spirit. And then Christ ascends to heaven, and there are two angels you know, telling people, hey, 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 don't worry, he's gone, but he's going to come back exactly the same way. And that takes place there. But Christ's ascension is often lumped together with his resurrection and easily neglected in the discussion of evangelism. What I mean by you know, neglecting it is we don't really talk about Christ's ascension when we share the gospel, right? When we talk about the gospel, we talk about his death and his resurrection. We don't really talk about the fact that he went to heaven and then he's there. Uh, sometimes we say it, sometimes we don't. Uh, but we must separate between his resurrection and ascension because. Resurrection is very important, yet at the same time, ascension also has its own theological implication about the gospel, uh, witnesses, and also about missions. So one New Testament uh, scholar, Murray Harris, rightly says, The resurrection proclaims, He lives, and that forever, while the exaltation proclaims, He reigns, and that forever. So, resurrection makes us sure that Christ is alive today. And the ascension makes us sure that he's ruling today. So, there are two different concepts. So, thus, Christ's ascension guarantees that the King Jesus is actively ruling the entire universe at the right hand of God. So, there's a very important concept you find throughout the book of Acts. You know, whenever Jesus is speaking or he's seen in the book of Acts, he is actually at the right hand of God. Where do you, what do you find at the right hand of God? That's a ruling throne where Jesus sits and rules over the entire universe. So one commentator, Patrick Schreiner says, Acts is based on the fundamental reality of the continuing reign of the living and enthroned Christ. Other themes in Acts spring forth and grow out of Christ enthronement. You know, any other things you see Christ you know, commands and does through his apostles were, were based on the fact that Christ was at the right hand of God. He was enthroned on the throne uh, at the right hand of God. That's why he had the authority to command his disciples to, to go into the whole world. And another com- uh, scholar says this, this way, the ascension is for Luke, the point of intersection of Christology, which is study of Christ, and eschatology, the study of end times, and ecclesiology, the study of the local churches. So without reigning as Lord in heaven, Christ's work is incomplete. So if Jesus was risen and that alone, he's still roaming around, roaming around the world, he wouldn't have been having that kind of you know, stature, you know, sitting on the throne and ruling. So that's why he went up. to to stay at the right hand of God as the the active ruler of the universe. Why is the fact that Jesus is exalted to the reigning throne theologically and practically significant to our mission's work? For Jesus' disciples, the truth that Jesus was exalted to the reigning throne of God was the source of their courage and bravery against the spiritual forces of Satan and against the political forces of the Roman Empire, and against the religious forces of Judaism. If they didn't know that Jesus was ruling actively ruling from the right hand of God, they wouldn't have that kind of courage and bravery go against all these spiritual forces. But because they knew that Christ was actively, actively reigning from the right hand of God, they were able to do what they were doing to proclaim the gospel. And the same truth is true for us as well. How can we confidently face the opposing forces of the world when we bring the message of the gospel to the world? The source of our courage and confidence is not on our own abilities or strategies, but the fact that we were commissioned by the enthroned sovereign of the universe to proclaim the message of the gospel to the entire world. So Christ's ascension is very, very important. And Christ's ascension is also missionally, missionally significant because the Holy Spirit couldn't come upon the new covenant community until Christ was enthroned to the right hand of God. Concerning the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, Peter says in Acts 2, let's go to Acts 2 and verse 33. Peter says concerning his ascension and coming of the Spirit, therefore being exalted to the right hand of God, And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. See the sequence: Christ was enthroned, the right hand of God, and then the promise of the Father, the promise of the Holy Spirit came because Christ sent the Holy Spirit from the right hand of God. Of God, You don't have to go there. John 6, 16, 7, the Lord Jesus himself said like this, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your age that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, the comforter will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. So Christ's ascension to the right hand of God is directly related to the coming of the Holy Spirit. And that was God's program concerning transition from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Testament. So, speaking of the coming of the Holy Spirit, let's briefly talk about the significance of Pentecost. Now, of course, Pentecost took place in Acts 2. And uh, we know that Israel observed three pilgrim- pilgrimage feasts according to the Mosaic law. And all three feasts are intimately related to the Exodus story. What was the first feast they observed? Passover. Passover was a time to remember the Exodus or God's redemption of Israel from Egypt. What was the second? Second was the Feast of Ingathering, or we call it Pentecost. And it was a time to celebrate Israel's encounter with God at Mount Sinai. You know, at Mount Sinai, God gave the law to the Israel nation of Israel through Moses. And the Pentecost was a time to celebrate that. And there's a third uh, feast that is called the Feast of Booths or Feast of Pentecost. Tabernacles, which it reminded Israel of God's provision and care for the nation of Israel during, during their wilderness journeys or wanderings. So, in Jewish tradition, the Feast of the Ingathering or Pentecost was tightly tied to Sinai, coming between the Passover and the Feast of Booths. And it was an agricultural festival acknowledging God's abundant provision on. The, earth. the reason why it's called Pentecost, this is actually 50, 49th day from the Passover, which was a, a, around the time of the first, you know, of um, harvest of wheat. And that's what they were celebrating. And also at the time, it was a time when the, the law, the Torah was given to the nation of Israel. So it was a, a mixture of many celebrations on um, Pentecost. And so it has also become the day, like I said, uh, the celebrated Moses receiving of the Torah on Mount Sinai. Then what is the significance of Israel receiving the Torah from God, the law of God? Why, why the law is so important for Israel? It signified that God created a holy nation from the descendants of Abraham. Of course, you know, the descendants of Abraham were all, you know, from the beginning, they, they were set apart for God. Yet at Sinai, the sons and daughters of Abraham became the people of God as one nation. But that's the significance there. Until, up until Sinai, they weren't a nation. They were just a people group. But at Sinai, as the king giving them the rules to keep, now they're, he's establishing a, a systemic nation, kingdom, so that they can be calling themselves the subject of one king, Yahweh, and now they are becoming one nation. And on the same day of Pentecost in Acts 2, with the coming of the Holy Spirit, now in the Old Testament it was the coming of the Torah, but in the New Testament it's the coming of the Holy Spirit, a new people or a new nation emerged as well. What do we call it? The church is a new people of God, or you can call ourselves the new covenant Community, a new community of faith that is called the church. That's the significance of Pentecost. So, what is then the missional significance of the Pentecost event? Do you remember what happened when the Holy Spirit came upon the disciples in Acts 2? They began to say something in different languages, they prophesied in various languages. So let's go to Acts 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them divided tongues as a fire and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them Utterance. And verse 6. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused, because everyone heard them speak in his own languages. Then they were they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus in Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes. By the way, the visitors from Rome, probably they were the ones who established the church in Rome um, without an apostle. And then, verse 11 Cretans and Arabs, we hear them speaking in our own tongues, the wonderful works of God. Who are these people who are listening to the prophesying, the message of God or glorification of God in their own language? They were Jews. They were still Jews, but they were born in foreign lands, just like Paul was born in Tarsus, in Cilicia. They were like Jews who were living in different parts of the world, but they were gathering there because it was Pentecost. They wanted to celebrate the feast, and that's why they were there. So when God created a new people group, set apart from the world to himself he sent his spirit to them and made them speak many different languages they never learned to speak what does it theologically and practically signify it signifies that the new testament church must consist of various people groups who speak different languages 그게 제가 왜 한국말로 여기서 말할 수 있는 이유기도 하죠 <laughs> so I just said that's the reason why I can speak Korea in this church. This is not American church. This is not a Korean church. This is just a church that belongs to God. So anyone can speak their own languages and still be welcome to this church. So by making, uh, so so it's here. You know, as I said, you know who who, who were the one hundred twelve twenty people who received the Holy Spirit and began to speak other languages. They are all Jewish people, right? But God wanted to make sure that they learn that their church couldn't remain Jewish. By making them speak various languages of the Gentiles, God emphasized that the gospel must reach the Gentiles and that his church must be multi-ethnic and multi-language gathering. So that from the beginning, from the very day when he gave birth to the New Testament church, it is super clear, crystal clear, that God wanted it to be multi-ethnic and multi-language group. So the gospel rapidly spread among the Jews and half-Jews in Old Judea and Samaria. And we finally find the first Gentile convert in Acts chapter 10. So let's go to Acts chapter 10. We find here the conversion of the Gentile Cornelius, and his household and since cornelius and his household were gentiles it is so obvious that their conversion has a huge theological significance for gentile missions so i don't want to spend time there to talk about all the details about their conversion yet i just want to point out one important theological point in cornelius's conversion story when you compare how paul preaches the gospel to the jews in acts 2 and how he preaches the gospel to the Gentiles in Acts 10, you will find that he preached the same message to both groups. The two messages are exactly identical. Probably he used different words here and there, but the core message was exactly the same. He preached about Christ's re- crucifixion, his resurrection, his ascension, and his lordship over the entire world. Basically, what That's what Peter preached to the Jewish people in chapter 2, and then also the Gentile people in chapter 10. Also, when you compare how the Holy Spirit was given to the Jews in Acts 2, and also the Gentiles in Acts 10, you will find the fact that both groups received the Holy Spirit exactly the same way. So after Peter came back to Jerusalem, from Cornelius' house in Caesarea by the sea, which is not Caesarea Philippi, which is north of Israel, but it was Caesarea at the south, or the west of Israel. And some Jewish believers began to question Peter if he ate with Gentiles. Probably they were concerned about Peter breaking the Old Testament command, not to have a food fellowship with Gentiles. Why? Because they were actually evangelizing the Jewish people in Jerusalem, in Old Judea. And if Peter broke that law, the command, it could have been a hindrance to evangelize other Jewish people who hated the Gentiles so much. So Peter had to explain how he received the vision from the Lord to go preach the gospel to the Cornelius' household. Then he explains how the Gentile converts received the Holy Spirit. Let's go to chapter 11, Acts 11, verse 15. And as I began to speak, Peter says, the Holy Spirit fell upon them as upon who? Us at the beginning. That was the argument that Peter is making to these Jewish people who are concerned if Peter broke the food fellowship, the the law with the Gentiles. They received the spirit just like we received him on the day of Pentecost. Then I remember the word of the Lord, how he said, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If therefore God gave them the same gift as he gave us, when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand God. When they heard these things, they became silent and they glorified God saying, then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. You see here? Now the Jewish Christians are finally, finally understanding what Jesus meant that they need to go to all nations and make disciples of them. They didn't fully grasp what that meant up until now in chapter, Acts, Acts chapter 11. But when Peter begins to explain this thing, these things, now they finally understand. Okay, then, we need to preach the gospel beyond the land of Palestine. So Cornelius' conversion is significant, not just because he and his household were the first Gentile converts, but because their conversion story demonstrates that both Jews and Gentiles received salvation exactly the same way. They were saved by the same message of the gospel, and they received the Holy Spirit, the gift of the Holy Spirit, in, in the same way. And also through their conversion, the entire church in Jerusalem came to know that it was God's will for the gospel to be preached to the entire Gentile world. So what conclusion can we make based on what we learned tonight? The book of Acts is a book that uniquely emphasizes God's passion for missions. When we open this book and read it from the beginning to the end, we, feel, we can feel the, his passion to reach both Jews and Gentiles with the gospel of his son, Jesus Christ. And while the message of the gospel originated through the Jewish Messiah, God never meant it to remain among Jews only. The book of Acts demonstrates God's for world evangelism. As a people who love God and want to do what he wants us to do, we must pay close attention to how the first missionaries share their lives and message with the people who looked, spoke, and lived differently from them. And I think there's a direct application we can make for us who live near Cary and Mooresville area. Now, we have a lot of people living in town that look different that speak differently and also that live differently, right? Their customs, their cultures, even, you know, I'm so Americanized. So you might feel like it's Joy sometimes feel like American. But still, I have some you know, aspects that I haven't shown to you <laughs> that I'm very Asian and Korean. So we are so different. But what, what, what the book of Acts makes us sure is this, this. With the same gospel, with the same Holy Spirit, we become One. We become one family of God, one nation of God, one people of God. And that's why the book of Acts was given to us. So next time when we meet and when I preach, I'm going to talk about uh, the, how the Lord transformed Saul, a persecutor, to Paul, the lover of the Gentiles. The persecutor of the church, the lover of the church. And by the way, you know, Paul's name didn't change. I'm going to save it to later but his name didn't change from Saul to Paul. I'm not going to say tell you the answer yet because you need to listen to it later. <laughs> All right. Let's okay. pray.